You're listening to Historically Speaking with Alyssa Gray Titer, a podcast about <laughs> whatever I want. I'm talking about the stories of our past and how they shape our present narratives. My stories, my way. It's history in the making. What up, peeps? This is Alyssa, and welcome back to Historically Speaking. Um, it has been such an amazing week, so peaceful. I didn't have any work to do, so I just got to relax and spend time with Daddy Bear and the Bear Cubs. And, you know, it's just been absolutely peaceful. Um, I say all that <laughs> to say that um, it's about to get really hectic and you can go tune into uh, Teachers Like Us to hear all about back to school and all of that fun stuff. But like, I'm already over where we're going with back to school, considering that we're supposed to be a week out from, you know, teachers being back and kind of figuring out our lives and having uh, PD sessions and stuff like that. And yet we still have no clue what's going on. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit terrified and by a little bit, I mean a lot of it. Like we still have no concrete plans. Um, and you know, it's, it's a little bit terrifying. Um, and I, I bring that up because I've been seeing all of this back to school stuff out and it's kind of hard for me to get into this whole back to school vibe when I don't know what's happening yet. So I'm seeing all these ads and especially on Instagram, you know, the influencer marketing is real. Um, but I will say that ever since y'all posted that little black square, um, nothing has changed. <laughs> like, so all these companies promised diversity, right? Don't worry, in our next marketing campaigns, we're going to have all the diversity in the world. Rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, let's get it. No, there is very little diversity in our influencer marketing for this uh, this gear up for back to school. And, and you'd think, given you know, everything we're seeing, even like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette are getting some diversity. That's another talk for another day. But um, you know what I mean? Like some companies are really trying, but other companies are like, yeah, we don't even care because you guys don't care anymore. Um, another kind of piece to that puzzle is that like Brianna Taylor's name is no longer uh, trending. So, you know, arrest the cops that killed Brianna Taylor. Um, so I think... All of, like all of that really does go hand in hand to this idea that we are still not prioritizing and not just diversity, but really, I feel like black women especially are falling through the cracks of, I don't know, our consciousness um, of importance. Like I really did expect to see more. I wanted to see a variety of faces, truthfully, like not just black women, but again, um, because typically black women tend to be quite visibly the most like the antithesis to whiteness. Right. So I, I did. I expected to see a lot more. And what I got was Jillian Harris. And again, <laughs> I said this on Instagram and like a few people were like, what about Jillian Harris? Why don't you like her? And truthfully, it's not Jillian Harris in particular that I don't like, um, because truthfully, I don't 
I don't really know much about her uh, as a person or as, you know, anything else for that matter. But I will say that she represents um, an ideal, right? She she represents the normative kind of uh, visually appealing person that companies want to see. And her following reflects that, right? Like, um, I was having a conversation with, you know, some of the peeps on Instagram, and we were talking about the idea that Jillian Harris is, um, yes, she does, you know, she does things for, you know, some disenfranchised groups, but she's also, when we talk about, you know, giving up power or sharing your your space and making room for um, marginalized voices, she doesn't so much do that. It's not that she never does it. So, you know, don't come for me about, ah, she's done this, she's done this. Yeah, like, great. Um, but her brand is protecting her whiteness, right? Like, she very much lives in her whiteness and the she profits from that whiteness. And that's a great thing for her. So she's not willing to risk kind of anything that is going to uh, go against that brand, And so that's my problem, really, with the, like, glorification, really, of Jillian Harris. And that's what we're seeing. She is everywhere. Jillian Harris uh, with Sage. Jillian Harris with Smash Cheese. Jillian uh, Harris with Indigo. Like, the brand partnerships are just flowing. And, again, it just keeps pushing this narrative of... uh, normative femininity in whiteness, like all wrapped up together. And so that's my issue with not seeing the diversity that I'd hoped to see. And we I mentioned Jillian Harris because she's Canadian and that's kind of in our Canadian market. That's who we're seeing. Um, I'm not sure kind of in the US what what you guys are seeing or who is, you know, there's probably a couple of major influencers that are doing your brand marketing in the US. But I would say that uh, Jillian Harris is like one of the top. That's not to say that she's the only one, but, you know, she's the one that we really are seeing the most of, I would say. And this presents a problem for so many reasons, Um, not only in who's getting opportunities to be seen and whose voices are, um, are often heard, but it also presents a problem because you have to think about the people who are on Instagram, right? It's not just those of us who are 30 plus. In fact, I think for the most part, um, it is, you know, 20 year olds and teenagers, like a lot of my students are on Instagram and on other platforms as well, where influencer marketing is big. But I feel like Instagram is one of those um, or is the kind of primary outlet for that. So in only showcasing, and, and for the most part, it's not just white girls, but it's skinny white girls, right? Like very kind of Uh, Eurocentric beauty standards, white girls who are shown. And then you have to think about um, your students or your children or, you know, just the the tweens, teens and early 20 year olds who are looking at this content like that is unattainable for so many of us for so many reasons. Like um, I'm never going to to be white. I'm never going to have skin like that. Um, and not that I want it, but, you know, it then creates this kind of unattainable image of beauty, of normativity, of lifestyle that just 
it does so much to the self-esteem of you know our young people out there and so i think it's really important to understand why diverse faces voices perspectives are so important in you know not just influencer marketing but just in the world period right this is why we need to see more representation and while representation isn't everything meaning that you can't just have representation without kind of the content or the um substance behind the you know behind the representation um but with that said representation does matter and so i think brands need to start recognizing that also we notice that in the types of companies that are now representing influencers because a lot of influencers are assigned to brand agencies that will manage their brand and then hook them up with potential sponsors and so when like again i was looking through them just to see like hmm you know what would it be like if i had a representation for Alyssa G Titer as a brand right and i was like okay i would really like an agency that is diverse that has a very strong you know perspective and is very um engaged with you know social justice and with equity and all of these things let me tell you i have yet to find an agency if you are one feel free to reach out but um of all of the large agencies in and around uh toronto more or less i will say um yeah, they were all run by the same types of people that we see in influencer marketing. They were run by young, um, like Eurocentric beauty standards, white girls. So I think that goes along with it. And we, we just kind of see where power is centralized, I will say. And too often we think that actually that's a lie. It's not too often we think that, but we're very aware of the fact, <laughs> I just wanted to make that clear because I was making it seem like it wasn't a fact, but we are very aware of the fact that hegemony usually refers to cisgender white males um, that have like able-bodied English speaking, like again, all of those dominant culture characteristics ascribed to them. But we oft often forget that kind of white women stand right alongside of those white men and usually prop them up to hold them in place. So for today's classroom session, we're going to talk a little bit about how white women have been complicit in oppression, especially of their BIPOC uh, female and femme counterparts. So let's go. Schools in session. Often when we think about the racial divide caused by whiteness, we picture white men as they're the poster child for hegemony. However, this version of hegemony negates the fact that many white women strongly defend the concept of whiteness. They hold on in defense of their husbands, sons, fathers, uncles, and other male figures. They also hold on in defense of their own femininity and what it means to be a woman in the patriarchy. White women clearly hold cultural capital as the direct descendants of those in power. Say what? Okay, so in deconstructing the feminist movement, we can see that there have been lines drawn along the racial divide. Uh, the feminist movement uh, seeks to advance the goals of the Western white woman without regard for her racialized peers. In indigenous communities, we refer to this type of thing as lateral violence. So 
uh, when we talk about lateral violence, it refers to the way communities misdirect their anger towards their own communities rather than their oppressors. Um, lateral violence by white women to women of color has been well documented over the course of history during first contact, the transatlantic slave trade, the suffragette movement and the civil rights movement, to name a few. So let's take it back, shall we? In the 1600s, at the point of first contact, many Indigenous societies were matrilineal, a system whereby land ownership and lineage is passed down through the mother. However, both men and women had roles that balanced one another in strength and spirituality and did not exist in a hierarchical system. Through the work of Rebecca Tsosi, we see how Indigenous communities valued women. So I took this quote from her book and I will link all of the resources I used for this particular episode in the show notes. Um, So she says, unlike the women of many European societies that legally determine men to be the owners of resources such as property, uh, Native women often owned property, including land, agricultural products, and the means of economic production. Even if they were not the political leaders in a particular tribe, they were entitled to the rights of ownership and control of resources that are more typically associated with political and economic power in European societies. Um, So that's very different from what we're seeing uh, from European societies at the time, which, again, then kind of implanted itself or colonized its way into our our standards and norms. So in European societies at the time of first contact, they lived in a hierarchical system that prioritized male leadership over women. However, racial superiority was like strong throughout Europe, with Europeans believing their worth over nations they deemed less civilized. Um, through slow and calculated plotting, planning, um, and ascendancy, Eurocentric standards were imposed upon us, um, imposed upon Indigenous populations across Turtle Island with the creation of the Indian Act. So, with the creation of the Indian Indian Act, sorry, and the subsequent implementation of residential schools, Christian beliefs and social structures demolished Indigenous ways of knowing. And then Sosie goes on to say in her article that gender hierarchies and systems of oppression became kind of the norm when colonial ways were implemented. Um, And colonialism changed the way we perceive the role of the Indigenous woman. She was once able to own land and hold positions of leadership, and that was quickly replaced with subservient roles to their male counterparts, Part, sorry, and lack of autonomy in their own lives. Like Indigenous women held positions of leadership that allowed them to make decisions um, about the land in consultation with other tribal leaders. However, like in the 1800s, the role of the government changed the extent to which Indigenous women held power. Um, there's another snippet from uh, Sosie's book that says between 1808 and 1825, male leaders instituted a series of laws that transformed marriage, property rights, family lineage, and the political rights of women. This enabled these leaders to transfer Cherokee lands and resources to the United States government. So that's particularly a U.S.-focused means by which Indigenous sovereignty was changed by colonialism. And we saw very similar things happen right here in Canada. So like before we we go any further, I know some of you are already thinking, but 
wait, like, how did white women have anything to do with any of this? Um, And I find that in these types of situations, it's very easy to vilify the architects of laws and statutes and forget about the bystanders who work side by side to uphold these oppressive structures. Um, You know, even just down to very simple things like, how did these men survive? Who cleaned their clothes? Who cooked them meals? Like who allowed them to flourish and thrive as individuals and thinkers and beings, right? Like never mind being silent about any of that. Like you were actively helping these systems to grow quite literally, like literally and figuratively speaking, but I would say literally. Um, If we look specifically at the residential school system and, you know, what, actually, before I go any further, I'm going to put a trigger warning in here Um, because we are talking about residential schools. We are going to deal with a few topics of abuse. And so um, I would encourage you to either skip past this and I will put it in the notes kind of where the trigger warning occurs and when it ends. So that way you can skip uh, through the chapters if you need to. Okay, so um, sorry, I should have put that earlier. But again, before we go any further, just know that if you need to walk away, um, I encourage you to do that now. Okay, so if we look specifically at the residential school system, the structure of the institution itself may have been designed by men, but white female nuns played the same role as their male counterparts in enforcing the rules created to quote unquote, and again, this is a direct quote, take the Indian from the child. Um, Nuns were responsible for educating students in the ways of Christianity um, and Catholicism. There are firsthand accounts from residential school survivors in which they describe abuse at the hands of nuns. In a 2015 Globe and Mail article, residential school survivor Dennis Whitebird shared the following recollection about his time at Sandy Bay Indian Residential School in Manitoba. Once I got beaten severely by a nun, I got slapped, my hair was pulled, I was punched and so forth and slammed into the table and whatnot during mealtime. My crime was, I didn't know how to say please and thank you. I was still probably about six years old. The beating went on for about 10, 15, 20 minutes. She kept asking me questions and I was crying and she kept saying, did you have enough? And I didn't know if I could say no or yes or whatever the case may be. And then she would hit me some more. Again, that wasn't a white man who did that. Whitebird's account of his time at residential school echoes that of narratives from survivors across Canada. Um, There's another one from a survivor of St. Anne's Indian Residential School in Ontario. And um, this one says, nuns, priests, and lay brothers would hit students with large straps, small whips, beaver snare wire, boards, books, rulers, yardsticks, fists, and open hands. Sometimes students were locked away in the dark basement for hours at a time. Like, and again, these are two accounts. I'm not going to keep reading through survivor accounts because they they are traumatic. And even in speaking about them, I can feel my chest tightening. And, you know, I have to not only like I have to protect, you know, those of you out there, but I have to protect my own mental health as well. Um, But these accounts are numerous and yet serve as one example of the ways in which white women's destructiveness by their complicity um, in white supremacy is harmful. Um, 
violence at the hands of nuns was not limited to physical abuse. There were accounts of emotional, psychological and sexual abuse at the hands of white women in positions of power at residential schools. And so often the narrative for residential schools places only men in positions of abuse and ascribes caregiving attributes to the women who were just as culpable of inflicting trauma. Um, Even if the role of nuns had been minimized, like meaning they didn't have any, let's say, physical role um, in any of this, they still would have been complicit in their silence in upholding hegemony and the dominant culture. If we go forward in our timeline a little bit, um, we see that in the 1800s, the transatlantic slave trade saw the mass enslavement of Africans to the Americas. And, you know, like the atrocities faced by indigenous communities, those of enslaved Africans are numerous. Like there are so many different ways in which, you know, Africans were oppressed and and continue and their descendants continue to to be so. Um, If we look at African women in particular, enslaved African women were not only forced to, you know, work in the field, uh, like doing hard labor like their male counterparts, but were also used for the attributes their slave owners could link to femininity. So in Angela Davis's book, Women, Race and Class, she says women suffered in different ways. For they were victims of sexual abuse and other barbarous mistreatment that could only be inflicted on women. Expediency governed the slaveholders' posture toward female slaves. When it was profitable to exploit them as if they were men, they were regarded, in effect, as genderless. But when they could be exploited, punished, and repressed in ways that suited only for women, they were locked into their exclusively female roles. So... Most enslaved black women worked in the fields, but given the utility of the black female body, black women also worked as housekeepers, seamstresses, mammies and wet nurses. White women stood by while their husbands, sons, brothers, uncles and cousins raped black women and continued to use their labor for their own benefit. Like black women had their own children stolen and sold into enslavement and were then expected to feed and care for their master's children. So excuse me, but like many of us as black women wonder how another woman could inflict the kind of cruelty white women inflicted on their black counterparts. Like surely the experience of childbirth inextricably links women in a profound way. Yet white women were content to see enslaved women suffer so long as their own station in life was protected. And before you start coming at me with, well, we were oppressed too. I get it. I get that white men at this point held power. But you have to understand that at some point, there is, at some point, somebody has to do something about things that are wrong, right? And the only reason white women didn't is because they lived more comfortable lives than their BIPOC counterparts. So maybe they weren't living in extreme comfort. Some of them definitely were. But, you know, for those who maybe who weren't, they were still better off, um, again, than their BIPOC counterparts. So the history books often neglect to mention, though, (laughs) that white women 
were also responsible for enslavement as well. So if you've read the book, um, they were her property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South by Stephanie E. Jones Rogers. Um, That book is amazing for just uncovering the ways in which, you know, not only were white women just complicit, they were right in there with their white male counterparts um, in, you know, enslaving people. So in her book, she actually states that um, in parts of the 1850 and 1860s uh, census data that she had gone through, white women made up about 40 percent of all slave Owners. I'm sorry, what now? No, seriously. In order to preserve the status lamented by owning enslaved people, white women fought in courts to preserve their legal ownership over enslaved people as opposed to their husband's ownership. Like, they literally fought for the right to own slaves and find pieces of independence from their husbands, yet ignored their female counterparts with whom they fought to own. The femininity and purity afforded to white women allowed them to escape the clutches of historical accuracy, leaving less than a mark on the pages of history. Like, you never hear about this um, because their femininity is so regarded that they had to preserve it by leaving out these fun little tidbits. I know this is a long school session. So if you need to grab a break and get some water, you can do that now. But come back because I'm about to go forward in time a little bit. Ready? Okay. So let's go forward in time a little bit to the suffragette movement. And I know some of you out there are like, "Ooh, okay, fantastic. Like I know about the suffragette movement. We fought for all women. Uh, No, you didn't. No, you didn't have several seats because here is what actually happened. So um, in the 1900s, we see the first wave of feminism. And that's, you know, women's suffragette. Um, There are movies based on it, books like we have seen the way suffragette has played out. And it really does look like a fight for women, point blank, and the period. But that is not the case. The the goal of this movement was not for all women to vote, but for white upper middle-class women to vote, Um, the Karens, if you will. In her autobiography, Anna Howard Shaw, a leader of the suffragette movement in the United States, showed us that women can be feminist and also racist at the same time. So she says in her book, if political equality is the basis of social equality, and if by granting political equality, you lay the foundation for a claim of social equality, I can only answer that you have already laid that claim. You did not wait for women's suffrage, but disenfranchised both your black and your white women, thus making them politically equal. Ooh, we're not allowed to be equal. Okay, but it continues. But you have done more than that. You have put the ballot into the hands of your black men, thus making them the political superiors of your white women. Read your white women. Never before in the history of the world have men made former slaves the political masters of their former mistresses. Oh, say word, Anna Howard Shaw. That's how you feel? So again, I am not here advocating for the advancement of men, 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 men um, to the exclusion of women. But it is very clear that you can be a feminist and also be racist at the same time. So while Anna Howard Shaw 
does say that they left both black and white women behind, she quickly reverses that sentiment by arguing that former enslaved people should not hold station above their former owners. Whiteness takes precedent over feminism. This intersection of race and sex is what Kimberly Crenshaw would later deem intersectionality. Google it. So throughout history, we have seen the idea of femininity and feminism linked directly to white women. The idea that femininity is tied to white women just reproduces whiteness in a different form. So you can see how even in or even with the idea of feminism, we are only upholding whiteness. And once again, our BIPOC counterparts are quickly swept under the rug or shoot out the door. White women have enacted various forms of violence against Black, Indigenous, and people of color since first contact. They've practiced emotional violence in belittling racialized women. They have contributed to the systemic destruction of the Black family by using white women tears to vilify Blackness. They have participated in physical and sexual violence against women in the form of residential schools and enslavement. They've enacted psychological violence in the workplace by gaslighting racialized women into thinking they are aggressive. They've repeatedly left their racialized peers out of feminist discourse and practiced silence in times when they could have been allies. At the risk of oversimplifying these horrific acts of injustice, white women can be likened um, to the bystanders in a bullying situation. Like we tell our children that if they do not stand up for those being bullied, they're just as culpable as those doing the bullying. In instances where white women haven't been the direct perpetrators of violence, their silence has allowed white supremacy to flourish. White women benefit from the privilege of being white, um, which provides racial racial insulation for them. Like they don't have to experience oppression on a large scale. They definitely experience, um, you know, oppression linked to um, being a woman, but there is a real protection in being a white woman and being allowed to rely on your femininity um, to hold systems in place. And that's the end of that. All right, school's out. Let's chat. So let's keep it real. Some of you felt like that entire school session felt a little like this. You're a virgin who can't drive. Oh, that was way harsh, Ty. And I totally get it. Um, but one, I do want you to sit in that discomfort a little bit um, because that's okay, right? It's okay to be uncomfortable and feel called out Um but your reactions are really what's going to make the difference here. Number two, though, I do want to say that don't mistake me laying out history for you as saying that all white women are bad, because I'm not saying that at all. Um, in fact, some of my best friends, biggest supporters, greatest allies are white women, like who I talk to daily and honestly teach me things sometimes. So like, I don't want you to walk around here offended and then be like, she said we're all awful. No, that's not what I said at all. What I'm saying is there is a historical context for the reason that these disparities exist today. And again, you're like, well, how did you get from influencer to enslavement to residential schools? That's what I'm trying to show you. I'm trying to show you how all of these systems have been put in place and 
even though it doesn't look like that now, that same system is what's guiding how we function in today's society. So all of those things are inextricably linked. And being white does not mean that you are a bad person by any stretch of the imagination. There is so much good um, that comes out of, you know, white women, but it's in that choice, in that choice to do better, to do more, to be an ally, to give up power when you can, to pass the mic, share the mic, you know, all of those things. Um, I know people who are like, again, I don't want to throw her name out there, so I won't, but I'm going to speak directly to, I call her my OG mentor. So OG mentor, this is for you. And I'm not going to cry and you're not going to cry listening to this. But when I talk about the anatomy of a great ally and someone who is truly willing to fight for the cause. My OG mentor um, is only a few years older than me, but was kind of the one who guided me when I got to my school. And she took the lead really in forcing our school to look at their own biases, to check themselves, to understand what it meant to hold white privilege, and then to use that white privilege to uplift others and to give them a voice. And she was always very good and still to this day is very good at pushing me to use my own voice, um, but also using her voice in times when I shouldn't have to or it's been too much for me or the load is too heavy. Um, and it's not that I need someone to fight my battles for me. It's that, you know, let's take something as simple as um, Colonizer Gate or, you know, the million Karens that sometimes want to flood my um, messages when I post things. She's very good at articulating to them what the problem is, where white supremacy lies and how they can be better. And I don't have to say anything to her. Like, I don't have to say, can you please go tell these people how to act? Like, she just knows, like, you know what? This is not something that Alyssa should have to do. As a black woman, she is fighting this every day. As an indigenous woman, she's fighting this every day. So how do I, as a white woman, use the power that I have and the connection that I have to other white women to school them, to let them know? Because truthfully, sometimes my voice is too much. Um, and I don't say like, I don't think my voice is too much. But again, for someone who is being called in or called out, whatever you want to call it, um, it feels like an attack. But when your peer, your white female femme peer is saying, hey, check yourself and I got to check myself, too. Um, it, it it works, right? It comes across a little, I, I guess, I don't want to say nicer, but it it. It comes across in a tone that you can hear. And again, I've said it before. Sometimes I just need you to get the message. And so I do want to say that when I am having sessions like this and talking to you guys about how white femininity is regarded and valued and how we keep, you know, putting it on a pedestal, you then need to be aware of that. Um, and I think what makes people most uncomfortable about that, or white women in particular, is the idea that if you are, if you say that 
white supremacy exists and you are valued for your femininity, then it negates all of the hard work that you put into the things that you do. So again, people will say, if we bring this right back to the beginning about influencers, influencers will say to you, I worked so hard on this platform. You will never know all the behind the scenes stuff that went into this platform. And so I deserve my 1 million, 2 million, 3 million followers because I worked hard. No one is negating that. However, I guarantee you for all the work that you put in, there was a BIPOC person putting in just as much work and sometimes double the work without the recognition because there was no value for their presence. And so no one is saying you didn't work hard. All we're saying is that we're working hard right alongside you without that recognition. So you need to be aware of those things um, in the opportunities that you are being presented. So maybe when you're presented with an opportunity, no one is telling you to say no, but maybe saying what about? Yes, and. You know that improv um, that improv technique where they teach you how to say yes and, like you take the information and you add on to it. So why not take the opportunity to be like, you know what? Thank you, Indigo. Let's use Indigo for an example. Thank you, Indigo. I will gladly do this, but I would love to see X, Y, and Z get, you know, a position as well and someone alongside me, you know, bring women along with you. Bring BIPOC women along with you because you're going to keep getting these opportunities. It's just the nature of the game. So it's a yes and. Yes, I can have something, but can my sister have some too because she's been working just as hard. So I want you to keep that in mind and I'm going to shut this one down. Um, I actually feel really good about today's chat. I don't know if you do and hopefully, um, you know, you'll let this sink in before you react because Again, the tendency is going to be to um, or your gut, your knee jerk reaction is going to be like, ah, she hates us. (laughs) Take a minute, take a minute, sit with it, sit with the history, dig deep, dig deep, dive in (laughs) and, you know, grow, grow and learn and all of that. So. With that, I am out. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Make sure to rate and subscribe. Um, The ratings honestly just help boost the podcast. So um, that's I'm always grateful for that. Because again, um, it's not always about monetary support. It's just about amplifying um, voices and, you know, allowing us to have a bigger platform and a wider range of people that we reach. So again, I've said bye like 50 million times. So I'm saying goodbye for real now. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. We're all going to hang up at the same time. One, two, three. Yeah. I can't speak. Hierarchical, hierarch, hierarchy, hierarchical.